Welcome to Cold Case Western Australia, the official podcast series of the Western Australian Police Force Special Crime Squad. The squad's remit includes all unsolved homicides and long-term missing persons who are presumed murdered in the world's largest single policing jurisdiction, a beat of some two and a half million square kilometres. My name is Neil Poe and I'm your host. In this episode, we look at the horrific murder of 22-year-old Karen Mary Tate in the last days of 1979, a crime the media at the time dubbed the Bonfire Murder. Karen's badly charred body was found in bushland at Carragullen, 40 kilometres east of Perth, on the 30th of December 1979. There's no sanitised way to describe the terrible scene forestry workers came across that morning when investigating a small bushfire approximately 800 metres south of Brookton Highway. Karen was found lying face up in a smouldering tree stump, her body extensively burnt to the point that she was unrecognisable. We believe as investigators that the fire was lit purposely to destroy all evidence of the murder and the location of Karen's remains. That's Detective Sergeant Dion Selby, a 34-year police veteran, 26 years as a detective. He's the senior investigating officer for the current Special Crime Squad review of Karen's murder. Although Karen's body was badly burnt, Pathologists who performed the post-mortem examination were able to determine that she had also received serious head and facial injuries inflicted by a large piece of wood found at the crime scene. She had received some significant injuries prior, and I will stress that it was prior to her being satellite, so she was deceased prior to the offender having set her on fire. The pathologists were unable to determine if Karen had been sexually assaulted. Karen Tate was born in Victoria on the 15th of April 1957, but her family moved to Avalon Beach in New South Wales when she was one. She was the oldest of five siblings, followed by three brothers, Gerard, Matt and Philip, and then sister Anne-Marie. Her dad was a Qantas pilot. In no small irony, Karen moved to Perth in 1978 looking for a fresh start to life after suffering a terrible tragedy of her own, the death of one of her twin daughters at the age of just 14 weeks from cot death, these days known as SIDS or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. In 1975, Karen met and fell in love with Englishman Lenny Taylor, and they later moved in together in North Avalon. In July the following year, aged 19, she gave birth to twins Amber and Katrina. Karen's brother Matt and sister Anne-Marie, who were two and seven years younger respectively, recalled the traumatic night three and a half months later that changed everything. saw the babies regularly and stuff like that and then I think one night they, she had an argument with uh, Lenny and came round back down to mum's place where I was living 
and stayed the night there. And that's when one of them died of the cop death. We had a two-storey house and um, I know that she came home with the twins and put them to bed in their cot downstairs. Obviously, being young, I was in bed, but I remember some sort of scream in the middle of the night or, or later in the evening and the next thing I know is mum was holding Amber and they were rushing out the door to the car, clearly to take her to the hospital. Unsurprisingly, Karen was devastated by the loss of one of her babies and had to be sedated in hospital. Matt says her relationship with Lenny was never the same after that, with his family holding her responsible for Amber's death. They were not very friendly towards her because I think they blamed her for bringing them out at night time. To blame was crazy and very hurtful. The siblings say what happened after that is a bit of a blur. Lenny took Katrina from Karen at one stage and his sisters, Eve and then Belinda, ended up caring for her. No, I don't know how that happened. I guess it would have been the best option at the time. Mum was too devastated and broken and too old to look after Katrina. My father lived away with a new wife. So I'm assuming that Lenny's sister Eve, being a nice person, took her on board. Yeah, Lenny's sister ended up looking after Katrina and uh, it wasn't a legal decision. It was just the best thing to do, I think. In mid-1978, Karen made the fateful decision to leave New South Wales and move to Perth. I mean, she would have had a, a broken heart when she went there. She probably went there to escape the pain and the memory and all of that. You know, at 19, it's a young age to try and absorb that kind of pain. And what do you do? You numb it or you run away from it, you escape from it. People who knew Karen in Perth described her as vivacious, friendly and intelligent, but also a bit lonely and lost. Detective Sergeant Dion Selby says she led a transient lifestyle, staying with friends for short periods of time in the suburbs of Leederville, Trigg and Mount Hawthorne. It wasn't due to her um, not being welcome at those addresses, it was more due to the fact that not many people owned their houses at the time and her friends and that they were all they were all renting and moving around themselves so she was moving around with them. The way we describe her and her friends and the people she hung around with um, we often describe them as probably that um, hippie based you know dabbling in the, the cannabis the transient a lot of people on the dole a lot of people at that age bracket were probably um, you describe them as hippies at the time. She didn't have any vehicles she didn't like to use public transport if she was unable to gain a lift with someone uh, to wherever she liked to go, she would uh, often hitchhike. In 1979, there were obviously no mobile phones and the internet and social media didn't exist. Karen was an avid letter writer and that's how she kept in touch with family and friends back in New South Wales. 
She does write in letters that she's missing people and that she can't wait to see them uh, if they're coming over. Karen did have some short-term jobs in Perth, but struggled to find full-time work. In late 1979, she moved into a house at 18 Barley Street, Mount Lawley. There was a gentleman called Ray Africh, unfortunately he's now deceased, but he, he actually um, owned that property, which was rare back in the time, and he would have people stay and he'd rent out rooms. And um, probably about eight weeks prior to Karen's murder, she, she'd moved into that address. Um, she'd known Ray for some period before that and attended parties at that address prior to that. In October 1979, Karen met two young women who were renting a house at Carrigowan, an outer suburb in the Perth Hills best known for its orchards. Karen was invited because they were travelling over to New Zealand for Christmas uh, to see family and she was invited to stay and, and mine the house while they were away. They had two dogs that needed looking after and Karen thought well, it's a great way to get away from the city for a while. Karen travelled to Carrigowan on the 14th of December and the two women left on their holiday two days later. We don't have any record of her coming back to Perth during the next week or so. So she's there on Christmas Eve and we believe that she attended at the Rock Inn Tavern, uh, which is a local tavern in Brookton Highway, Carrigowan. It's uh, just on the Brookton side of Carrigowan, by a couple of kilometres from where she was staying at the most. We later find out that she may have even met someone that night at the tavern, but we don't know who that person is at this stage. Why just listen to this cold case when you could be helping us solve it? We are recruiting. Visit WA Police Force's Let's Join Forces website to find out more. On Christmas Day, Karen was invited to share a meal with the family who owned the property her friends were renting. And on Boxing Day, she was seen leaving the property, hitchhiking back to Perth. So she arrives at Barley Street um, that afternoon and that evening, Africh, who is the guy who owns the house, he's reported to us that that evening a, a gentleman came to the door. He knew him as Bill and describes Bill as a part Maori in appearance, about five foot six solid build. Um, he had a moustache and a chipped front upper tooth, shoulder length brown hair, and he was with other men who were in a large white vehicle at the front. He thinks the vehicle might have been an American-type vehicle. Ray Africh later told police he was aware that Karen wasn't keen on Bill, so he lied and said she wasn't there and Bill and his mates left. Bill has never been identified by police and that task is now one of the investigation team's lines of inquiry. On the 28th of December, a friend of Afridge's, Donald Campbell, visited the Barley Street house and whilst there invited Karen to accompany him to a dance at the North Cottesloe Surf Lifesaving Club that night. They arrived around 9pm, but Campbell had to leave early as he was due to work a night shift. Karen opted to stay longer and later met up with another man she knew, Jonathan Frodsham. And they danced for about 20 minutes before leaving a dance together at about 12.20am. 
and that's now Saturday the 29th of December 1979. The pair got a lift back to Frodsham's house in Swanbourne with two sisters who were also leaving the surf club at that time and Karen ended up staying the night. In the morning at about 9.30am, Karen and Frodsham wake up and Karen asks if he could take her back to Carragowan and due to his car being quite unreliable, he agrees to take Karen back to 18 Barley Street instead. At about 11am, Frodsham now drops Karen off at 18 Barley Street. Karen enters the house and Frodsham leaves. And this is the last confirmed sighting we have of Karen. It's worth stating at this point that Donald Campbell and Jonathan Frodsham are not regarded as suspects for Karen's murder. No one else was home at the Barley Street house at the time Karen was dropped off. How long she stayed and how she left the house remains a mystery. At the risk of stating the obvious, the two most likely scenarios are that Karen got in the wrong car with the wrong person whilst hitchhiking back to Carragallon, or that her killer or killers were known to her. We're keeping an open mind. There's obviously the part that she could have hitchhiked. She was known to hitchhike, but if she hitchhiked, there's no person's ever come forward to say that they took her to Carragallon. If she hitchhiked and was only taken halfway, because the person could only take her halfway, no one's ever come forward saying, I took Karen from close to Barley Street to close to Carragallon. And speaking to the people around Barley Street, they didn't see a lot of hitchhikers back in 1979. Barley Street was a little street with lots of cars parked on it. You couldn't hitchhike down Barley Street. You had to leave the area to start hitchhiking. You had to find a main road or an arterial you know, road to get out of that area. So there's no one even seen a person leaving 18 Barley Street and going to one of those main roads. If Karen didn't hitchhike, then it stands to reason someone gave her a lift from the house. And we're asking for all those people that knew her to come forward if we haven't spoken to them so that we can request that they provide a voluntary DNA sample to eliminate them from this investigation. Because if it's someone that knew her, someone she was comfortable with that could have given her a lift, or someone that knew Africh, or someone that ended up at 18 Barley Street and she asked for a lift, we need to identify who that person is. There's no evidence that suggests that she made it back to the address in Carragallon. But what we do know is that a spotter plane the following morning at around 9.25am on Sunday, the 30th of December, was uh, from the forestry department was up and observed smoke, which was south of Brookton Highway in Carragallon. So they sent ground crews to go and have a look at where the smoke was and the fire trucks arrived around 10.20 a.m. and identified the fire burning. And whilst they were attending to the fire, at around about 10.40 a.m., 20 minutes after being there, they identified the remains of Karen Tate. She was uh, within a tree stump, uh, which had been set alight. And there's no doubt in your mind and the arson squad's mind that someone had deliberately lit that. They stoked the fire, if you like. It was reported at the time that twigs and, and grass were, were packed around the area before it was ignited. Yeah, the, the crime scene indicates that the offender or offenders had deliberately placed Karen in that position and deliberately set fire to her.
Karen's search for a new start to life in Perth ended in the most brutal of circumstances. She was just 22 years and eight months old. As previously mentioned, Karen's body was severely burnt to the point she was unrecognisable. Fortunately, some distinctive jewellery she was wearing survived the blaze intact and when police released images to the media, friends and associates were quick to recognise the pieces. Dental records later confirming it was Karen. News of Karen's murder came as a great shock to her family back in New South Wales. Her younger sister Anne-Marie finding out in somewhat unusual circumstances as she began a night out with friends. And I remember driving from Avalon Beach to the city. We got to Sydney Harbour Bridge, which is an hour away from Avalon. I was in the car with two of my friends and I said, I've just got to go home and change my dress for no, no reason. And they're like, okay. And they just turned the car around and took me back to Avalon. And then Dad's car was out the front and that's when I found out. So it was like an intuitive pull, I suppose you could say. Just had to get home. No rhyme or reason. Just got to. And off I went. And what impact did that news have on you, Anne-Marie, acknowledging that you were only 14 or 15 at the time? I think it took a while to process great sorrow initially. And then, of course, I suppose over the months I went through the emotions of, you know, anger and trying to understand it and wanting to know why, which is still the big question to this day, just why. It took me years till I addressed it properly and looked into it so that I could deal with it emotionally. Years and years and years. Yeah, it's a long process. And... It was more painful to watch my mother with her broken heart grieving for all those years and my father and my brothers. It hurt. It's pretty hurtful. Karen's brother Matt didn't find out about her murder until days after the rest of the family. Well, me personally, I was on holidays down in Victoria, Warrnambool, and those days you didn't have mobile phones and stuff like that, so I was uncontactable. I read about it in a newspaper and then rang up my father and um, he said, get on a plane and get back up here. That's a fairly uh, horrific way to find out that your sister's been murdered. Yeah, not the nicest way. Police believe Karen was killed at the site where her body was located at around 6pm on Saturday the 29th of December. No witnesses have come forward to say they saw her between then and when she was dropped off at Barley Street seven hours beforehand. We did have a couple of um, people who were travelling towards Perth along Brookton Highway who at about 6pm on the Saturday the 29th of December observed the vehicle uh, come out of Sandy Track onto Brookton Highway. Where the track comes out onto the highway, it, it runs parallel for a little while with the highway. And so they were driving alongside that vehicle for a short period. And they described that vehicle as a 1968 to 1974 four-door white Holden sedan. And it was being driven by a male who they described as late 20s, early 30s. It came out of a track and pulled in behind them. 
Despite public appeals through the media, the driver of that vehicle was never identified. The baffling lack of witnesses who can place Karen after 11am on Saturday the 29th of December has been offset to some degree by the diligent work of the forensic officers who initially attended the crime scene, remembering of course that DNA was not a known thing in 1979. Notwithstanding the fire around the crime scene, were the original investigators able to seize any forensic exhibits? Yes, they, uh, they were able to seize a number of exhibits. Those exhibits have obviously been retained, which is great because um, obviously with the, with the age of a job and the knowledge of forensics at the time, um, they were obviously very limited. It was more blood grouping, etc., to identify people through blood grouping. So they retained the exhibits and over the years, as forensics have advanced, We've been able to continually review and examine these items that were seized from the scene and eventually we've resulted in obtaining an unknown male DNA profile from the crime scene. And obviously I can tell you that that profile was not on our database, um, otherwise we would have spoken to the person. The DNA has also been checked in other countries. Undeterred, the Special Crime Squad has now turned to investigative genetic genealogy. That's where the DNA profile is turned into a data file by a service provider and uploaded onto public international genealogy databases that allow law enforcement agencies to compare their unknown samples. Detective Inspector Darrell Cox oversees the Special Crime Squad. He's a 39-year police veteran, 35 years serving as a detective. He says investigative genetic genealogy is an emerging criminal investigation tool that the WA Police Force is developing capability in. The sample obtained from the crime scene of Kieran Tate has been forwarded to the International Genealogy Databases and they've given us a number of people that have a similar genetic makeup to our suspect. So this has given us a starting point to compile a number of family trees. And we're very confident that as a result of investigative genetic genealogy, that we will eventually get a name of a person who left that DNA at the crime scene. Genetic genealogy testing is different to the routine DNA testing used by law enforcement agencies around the world. Instead of analysing 21 long pieces of DNA, Genetic genealogy analyzes hundreds of thousands of single pieces of DNA, which enables the identification of much wider family relationships, identifying distant relatives over multiple generations or out as far as third or fourth cousins. It's a resource-intensive process, but it's one this Special Crime Squad is committed to. Definitely, 100%. If it takes two, three, four years, it doesn't really concern us. We'll just put all our efforts into doing that. We do other investigations at the same time, so this is running parallel. We have people sitting there building family trees day after day after day, so that's what's needed and that's what we'll do. The bodies of two other murdered Perth women were found in close proximity to where Karen's body was located Barbara Weston was last seen in Victoria Park in June 1986. Her remains found by wood collectors just off Sandy Track at Carragallon in March 1991. 
and Kerry Turner, who was last seen getting into a vehicle in East Victoria Park in June 1991. Her body was located in bushland at Bedforddale, which neighbours Carrigallon four weeks later. Detective Inspector Cox says his investigators have looked closely at the geographical similarities between the three murders, but so far there's been no other links identified. Obviously the same disposal sites, the same area. It would be very risky for a suspect to convey a body to the same disposal site. There's no forensic evidence at this stage that links the unsolved homicides. So we're just keeping an open mind. And can I also ask you about some speculation in the past about links to Karen's murder and notorious Perth serial killers, David and Catherine Burney. And for listeners unfamiliar with them, in 1986, they embarked on a very depraved five-week crime spree during which they abducted five young women whom David repeatedly raped. Then together they murdered four of them. They were only caught after the fifth victim managed to escape. Two of those five young women were picked up whilst hitchhiking, which probably explains the speculation about Karen, who, as we've heard, was an avid hitchhiker. But she was murdered more than six years before that 1986 crime spree. Can you tell us, though, if the Burnies were ever investigated as possible suspects for Karen's murder? David and Catherine Burney have been extensively investigated by the Special Crime Squad, not just for Kieran Tate, but for all of our unsolved homicides. Unfortunately, due to David Burney and Catherine Burney's reluctance to talk to police initially, and obviously David Burney died in Casarunda Prison in 2005, so we have no evidence at all to prove or disprove that they were involved in any other murders. Notwithstanding that, the crime scene of Kieran Tate and the other girls that were found in, in Carrigallon is very different to the crime scene of the four murdered girls by David and Catherine Burney. The Burneys buried all of their victims and the cause of death and injuries is not consistent with that of Kieran Tate. So unfortunately, with no other evidence to link the Burneys to other unsolved cases, all we can do is keep an open mind. After Karen's body was identified, there was some speculation in the media that she was involved in witchcraft and that that could possibly explain her murder and the burning of her body. Although the claim was played down by the original investigators, Detective Sergeant Dion Selby says the review team has looked into it. She had a, a little bit of an interest. She'd, she'd gone to a, a bookshop in the city that sold a lot of books around uh, the subject. She'd had books in her possession you know, that she'd obtained in regards to that side of things, into you know spirituality and witches, but she hadn't taken it to the next stage. We're going to have evidence that, that associates her directly into a coven or to a group of um, members involved in witchcraft around the Perth. There's no evidence that the way that they would run a ritual, run a, uh, an initiation, has, has led to the way she was murdered. 
Anne-Marie Tate says the family were not aware Karen had any interest in witchcraft. I personally didn't, never saw any evidence of anything witchcrafty. She was a hippie, that was all. I heard that she had some tarot cards, but doesn't everybody, you know? Or didn't everybody and doesn't everybody? I mean, I've got tarot cards, but it doesn't mean I'm a witch. The current Special Crime Squad review of Karen's murder commenced in March 2022. Detective Sergeant Selby says the key investigative themes centre on identifying everyone in Carrigullen and Barley Street, Mount Lawley at the time, as well as Karen's friends and associates and those of her landlord, Ray Affridge. A witness in this investigation is just as important to us as a suspect. That intelligence is just as important to us because it could be someone she knew. It could be um, someone that we don't know who she knew that we haven't found yet. So our, our job is to identify everyone she knew, ask them how they knew her, try and time frame that period of her life better and to eliminate those people as we go. If we haven't spoken to you, we'd like you to come forward and, and tell us how you knew her, how you associated with her. We're also asking if anyone gave Karen a lift from Mount Lawley or from Barley Street or the surrounding part of the suburb on that day, uh, on Saturday, the 29th, or partway to Carrigallon to come forward and tell us that they did that. Do you think you could help us close this cold case? We're recruiting and applications are open now. Visit WA Police Forces Let's Join Forces website to find out more. Even though it's been close to 44 years since her sister's murder, Anne-Marie Tate remains hopeful that the truth will emerge. Somebody should put their hand up. Somebody knows something. It can't be unknown. Somebody knows what happened that night, that day, that weekend. This doesn't come from a hateful place or revenge or blame or punishment. It's just a matter of wanting to know why. I think it's time that we knew why this happened because it's been way too long and somebody's been living with this their whole lives. They must have been hurt badly as a child to have been able to become the character that they became to do this to another person. So something must have been in their core, in their lacking in their life, love and what have you. That's sort of where I come from. I come from a belief, I believe in forgiveness. You would think for a normal person, it would be a very difficult thing to live with, the fact that you'd killed someone and mm -hmm. in rather horrific circumstances. Absolutely. I mean, could you imagine looking over your shoulder all the time? That person must either cringe unless that's the sort of life they've chosen to live continuously ever since. Was it a deliberate act? Was it a mistake? Was it an accident? Was it intended? Did something go wrong? Did they know her? Did they not know her? Were they angry at her? Did she hurt them? I mean... These are the questions that go through your head as to why. why, Just why did you do it? Just let us know what you did. Why? Yes, we want it resolved. I mean, that's, that's why I'm talking to you. 
I don't want this to just carry on. What would it mean to you, Matt, to to find out finally what happened to Kieran and who was responsible? I think just the final of it, you know, just a, over. Just the, the question's not in your mind anymore. The finale, if you know what I mean. The end of the not knowing. Yes. In May 2023, the WA government announced $1 million rewards for all unsolved homicides in the state, including Karen's. As Detective Inspector Darrell Cox points out, that is a life-changing amount of money. We do hope that the million dollar reward is that incentive that someone out there needs and someone has some information. It might be a very small bit of information, but it might just be the information that we need to put all this jigsaw together. The Tate family have been living this hell since 1979. So it's nearly 44 years and they deserve some answers and some justice. I've spoken to many families and it's not knowing what happened to their loved ones that hurts, not knowing why this happened. This is a question that they need answered. So if you've got some information out there, please come forward. And as I've said, there's a million dollar reward. If you have any information about the murder of Karen Tate, please call Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. For more information on this case and other unsolved homicides in Western Australia, please visit the Crime Stoppers WA website. Cold Case Western Australia is the official podcast of the WA Police Special Crime Squad. Written and produced by Neil Poe, editor Troy Lemmy, WA Police Force Advisor Luke Elliott. If you've enjoyed Cold Case Western Australia, maybe you have what it takes to help solve cases like this. Persons of Interest is a new podcast that gives you access to police operational information you've never heard before. Each episode will take you inside a case with a cop who has been given special permission by WA Police to speak very honestly and very openly for this podcast only. Persons of Interest is coming soon to everywhere you get your podcasts. But for now, please help us solve the cold case you've just listened to by sharing this episode with others because more people listening means more chances someone who knows something will come forward. Keep listening to Cold Case WA.